Hi, this is David Sweet, CEO and founder of Focus Core Japan. And if you were like many of the APAC leaders that I speak to, you're struggling in Japan to find the right talent. You get bombarded with irrelevant resumes or a lack of resumes altogether. I would like to invite you to discover the power of Focus Core's retained search. Let Focus Core help you swiftly secure top tier talent in this candidate short market. I'd like to invite you to shoot me an email and explore how we're different. And with a 100% refundable trial, we can revolutionize your hiring process today. Now on to our podcast. Do, do you need to stop the recording? Like if you end the call without stopping the recording, will it, will, will everything dis? It'll do it fine. It it ends by itself. Okay, cool. (laughs) So welcome to the Focus Core podcast. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Jonathan Kant, who is a fellow colleague of mine and uh, responsible for executive search on finance and accounting in Japan. And he recently wrote a very fascinating article, which we'll be discussing today, called Managing Local and Regional Stakeholders uh, for Challenges for CFOs. So, but before we get started, welcome, Jonathan. Hello, David. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. And uh, good morning to you. Let's uh, let's start off with uh, for people who don't know you. Talk about uh, kind of your path to your current position. Um, it's been fairly convoluted. Um, I started started off in uh, language learning and linguistics. I always enjoyed um, being learning to be able to speak foreign languages, and I did French at university. Um, and found it was hard to find positions where I would be living in France or uh, using French. So I then decided to become an English teacher. I had a friend who was here in Japan already, told me how good it was, and I came over. And then through the time that I was a teacher, I, I ended up moving into management um, and training. And I found that um, those were sort of areas that I really enjoyed. And so, I, um, I think I developed quite a, a lot as a, as a trainer and then as a people manager. Um, and I wanted to bring those skills uh, into an, an area where I might have even more opportunities to touch more varied people. Um, and I, uh, I met yourself and um, it, was, uh, it was a very good opportunity to, to then come into this industry. So uh, it's kind of strange that I was in language learning and uh, language teaching, and now I'm uh, recruiting finance professionals um, and talking to you know uh, people in a very kind of specific subset of professional life. But um, I, I do feel like what I learned as a, a coach, what I learned as a trainer, and as a manager are, are skills that I've ended up really applying in my current position so that's that's how i got where i am and uh, nice. yeah well yeah and I, I know you're fairly humble because you've 
You spent nearly a decade managing a, a fairly large team in a leading company before jumping into executive search. So I know that uh, you've brought those management skills with you. So that's uh, that's important to, part to remember, I think. What's, uh, when you, you, so you jumped into recruitment. Uh, what's one thing about the business that you didn't, that's kind of surprised you, you didn't expect? Um, yeah, well, I think the um, something that I've enjoyed is the fact that, um, you know, I can be reaching out to people who are very senior and who perhaps if you, if you make a stereotype of a CEO or someone higher up, like an APAC CEO, mm. you wouldn't necessarily, um, certainly where I came from, think that these kinds of people would have time to talk to me about their careers or about the companies and and this it surprised me how forthcoming and, and and willing people have been and continue to be and uh um you know to to actually give me their time to speak about their their organizations and their careers yeah and it's i think it's important that to remember that you know you're meeting you know 40 50 people a month in in your field and you're meeting these you know senior finance people you know 40 50 of them a, a month you really know what's going on in the market and who's moving and what companies are doing oftentimes before the companies do mm-hmm. um, which is i think always interesting especially i know you do a lot of work in apac and and those professionals want to know what's going on in japan and having that large network in Japan uh, assists you to be able to guide those those people. Yes, yeah, certainly. Yeah, um, it is interesting sometimes to to know that something was going to happen before it actually happens. That's that's definitely uh, a you could even say it's a perk of the job um, yeah. in a way. What's what's a common myth about uh, your expertise? Well. Um, one one myth I think just about recruiters in general um, is perhaps that people sometimes maybe think that the recruiter is only after the placement, um, and that does definitely something which is um, of course the re- making the placement is a very attractive part of the job, but um, the uh, everything that goes into that um the the listening the uh, the talking uh, about why an opportunity would be good for somebody for example or why a specific candidate would be good for that uh client um it, it re- should really reflect the, how much we do care um about making the right um the connection between the the, the client and, and the candidate and it's not just okay here's a CV, let's see what we can do with it. But it's more, um, much more to do with with actually finding uh, exactly the right opportunity that will make somebody's career um, move forward or, or will impact the business, um, you know, in a good way. Yeah, it's so important to highlight. I think there are some of the larger firms that are more transactional and there's a place for, for that. And there's large companies like I'm thinking about like an Amazon or, 
um, an Apple, they need that kind of transactional recruitment. But uh, what you're discussing is very much more of a consultative approach. I think mm -hmm. that, uh, and I think that a lot of recruiters are, um, as you say, they're, well, I mean, I've been in this industry for 25 years. I find that most recruiters are sincere and wonderful people. And um, there's a few bad eggs, but I think in any industry, there's a few bad eggs. We just happen to be in a very public light industry as well. So uh, what's what's kind of the biggest challenge that you're facing in, in your role right now? So I guess um, I think that the we've talked about building relationships with you know very senior leaders and, um, and that will, you know we at focus call we've had some some real success um, and it's you know it's great that we have a team because we can share ideas um, about how to do that but there have definitely been some occasions where you know it's it's been difficult to reach the the, the highest of the high um perhaps because companies are they they want to be more transactional when i want to be more consultative mm. um and uh you know it, it can be it can be a shame i think when you've uh you've you've heard about an opportunity um or you've heard about a, a problem that a company is facing and you think you have a solution that can really help them and, and it's difficult to get the conversation going um, so definitely from a point of view of, um, of building those relationships, it's, it's not across the board mm. easy to do. And I think it's, it's about maybe selecting where you want to apply your efforts to, to kind of get the, the maximum, to have the maximum impact, I guess, is, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with um, that. And, uh, you, you recently had, uh, written a, a very good article that I thought was just super important to, to highlight and uh, reason I wanted to have you on the podcast, which was, you know, managing local and regional stakeholders, because like you point out, that's a huge challenge um, for CFOs. And I think there's a lot here to, to unravel. I think let's, let's start off with what do you see as the difference between local and regional stakeholders? Well, I mean, I guess what, what what we're really talking about is whether we whether the um, the the manager in question is in charge of, of just Japan or if if they're in charge of you know a, a number of countries. And I think it's natural when you've got more countries to deal with. If you're like the APAC CFO or the APAC CEO, then it's difficult to um, perhaps care is a word that comes back. Um, to invest a degree of care in, in precisely and exactly what people think or expect. Whereas if you're on the ground in, in one individual country, I think it's, it's, it's almost, it's a duty, duty of care on your part to look after not just the directives that you're receiving from on high, but also um, how that will impact your team uh, or from the sales perspective, the market itself. Um, and, and you want to, to, to act in a way that will, of course, as much as possible, people want to, you know, follow the directives of their seniors, but at the same time, um, they don't want to 
um, perhaps damage anything about the the um, the atmosphere in their team or, or the way people view uh, working for that company, mm. um, and 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 if it and it potentially also if it damages the uh, the customer as well. I mean, there was a very good example um, when we were con- conducting. Um, the uh, competency interviews for a country manager mandate recently, uh, one of the candidates mentioned that a product that was sent over from the head office was in Europe in this case. Um, it was a, a wallet. I'm obviously not going to reveal the, 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 the company, but um, you can imagine the type of, of the industry. And the wallet was too small for an Ichimanian note. So yeah. they were trying to sell a product that was, well, in just in its very nature completely unsellable um and there had been very little effort gone into the uh localization of that particular certainly that particular line if not many more in that company Mm. um and i think like from a from a perspective of of local management that's where your expertise and your sensitivity uh, has to come in i think as, as a as a leader um so definitely that, I mean, that, that was an example that sort of stood out to me in, in mm. recent conversations. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a challenging one. I think that's, as you mentioned, being able to very much balance between what the local needs and, and like you say, especially in Japan, more so than almost anywhere else in the world, uh, you point out you don't want to upset the current team. You don't want to, you want to make sure that there's impact, but it's not necessarily what directly comes down from HQ. You need to kind of filter that and be a, a filter. And there's, there's definitely the, the balancing and weighing out what, how much of that message uh, flows through, which uh, yeah. is so important. What uh, you mentioned empathy as a key. Uh, talk more about that. Yeah, so I think um, if you don't have empathy, it's very difficult to lead effectively. Um, it, it, it's not, it, I, by saying empathy is key, I don't think it's saying that you have to do everything in accordance with the feelings of, of, of everybody that you're working with, but you do have to try to understand where people are coming from. And you do have to have a, 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 I guess, when I say where people are coming from, what I'm talking about is their expectations, you know, their preconceptions. Um, but the other thing is you have to be able to listen to understand and not judge. So, um, you know, even if, even if the eventual decision may go against people's um, hopes, preconceptions, whatever you want to call it, um, you do have to have a, um, an understanding of, of, of why, of basically where they're coming from and, and why they're thinking what they're thinking. And, and if you don't have the empathy, I think it's difficult to lead, actually. Um, uh, because people, if people think that you don't care, then it's going to be very difficult for them to, you know, be part of your team. Um, and certainly in my previous role, um, which uh, the, the final year that I spent in my previous role, we were, you know, really in the reef as far as the pandemic was concerned. And um, 
I, I saw it as like my responsibility to um, to not just say, okay, the CEO said we're going to do this, so just do mm. it. Um, but there was an awful lot more kind of um, uh, padding out, you know, uh, how I delivered that message and, and, and also understanding what people uh, were experiencing because there was an awful lot going on at the time. For me, that was like a really key experience as a manager. And I think, you know, if you're, if you're in a position like a Japan CFO role um, or an HR director position, and you've been given uh, like a good example is is often uh, the big uh, European auto companies. They they run on a matrix uh, yeah. setup, right? So it's literally Paris or uh, Berlin said this, so let's do it. Um, and sometimes um, uh, sometimes that's going to be fine. It might not be too complicated sometimes, but on on, on other occasions it can be quite. It can be quite sort of um, whether whether this is reflective of other countries, I don't know. But in Japan, it can be quite a shock mm. um, when it's a big change. Um, and I think it's important to be sensitive to those potential shocks. Yeah, it's and I think it's so important. The empathy needs to go both ways and it, it behooves a CFO uh, in to take time to understand HQ um, and their reasonings and thought process. And sometimes headquarters doesn't want to share that information or take the time to explain. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's where companies are very smart. And now that their borders are opening up again, it's easier to travel, but it's so important to really spend time in APAC or headquarters to really build those relationships. Yeah. Um, and so, like you said, we're working with, you know, a lot of Japan leaders and a mistake that I see with some um, Japanese nationals, if they don't take that time to empathize and learn what is their needs of he- headquarters and how they're thinking, and then to be able to explain that adequately um, locally is so important, um, as well as just empathizing with the local staff. I think it's easier uh, to empathize locally here in Japan than it is sure. just you're always saying, ah, the, you know, someone top down uh, said to do this, so that's why we're doing it. And I think that can be a real um, management suicide. If, if you're just spouting out what um, someone from the top has, has said, and yeah. there needs to be buy-in from top management so that there's a unif- unanimous message coming out from everyone. Um, and I think that's just so important for Japanese leaders to, to really um, make sure that they can explain to their staff. So I think that's important. And then, which leads us to, you know, your next point was, um, you know, influencing and talking about uh, influencing both up and down uh, through uh, making effective CFOs. What t- Talk about that. Well, um, I think as consultants, we, all, we often talk about how much information do you have surrounding um, where somebody is pointing or Mm. or why they are pointing in a specific direction. Um, and and um, certainly over the past 
uh, year and a half, I've definitely um, I've had to develop that skill myself. Um, and I think it's actually a good skill for people in these kind of managerial positions to be in. Um, so, um, I mean, to go back to the auto example, you know, big auto companies during the pandemic because of supply chain problems have had to close plants for a, you know, a, a day here, a week there, when people have basically had to um, either take some kind of um, constructed, structured leave system or um, or possibly even take unpaid leave. Mm. Um, and that's obviously been a, you know, a company decision from on high that's that's been reflected in the way that local management have done what they have done. And you can't really roll something like that out. Um, just like, and I've experienced this again in my previous company, by just by saying, well, it's a pandemic, so sorry, um, but get on with it. Um, I think it's important to sort of, to, to, un to, under to make people understand why a decision has been made and, and potentially how you're going to help them further down the line, or, you know, just because right now this is this is not a desirable result for what you're doing, perhaps we can um, we can do something later on that will kind of balance out that. Um, and, and that's to do with messaging, and that's to do with having as much information as possible. Um, so certainly, what we just mentioned about the the directive from Global or, or, or APAC um, perhaps needs to be. Um, uh to be to, to be accompanied with more of an explanation mm. um and even maybe some some flexibility isn't if if that's possible it may not always be possible but to say well okay if a isn't possible how about you try b or c um uh, and then going back up from for, for the cfo who's having to to deliver this this bad news to then uh to listen to what's going on on the ground and explain to to his regional counterparts why, well, perhaps um, we can do this, but maybe we shouldn't do that. Is there any way that we can switch that decision or um, we'll do something like that? So it, all the time, I think it's about getting as much information as you can um, and, and and using the information to to really make people understand more deeply and clearly about what's going on yeah yeah that's a such an excellent point to be able to to get that because oftentimes um headquarters are perceived as uh inflexible whereas really if leadership is willing to explain more and um, present alternatives. I think that also uh, helps. The other thing that uh, one of my favorite management tools in Japan is, you know, having that nemawashi. That uh, I think that's so important for local management to get the buy-in individually from yeah. from individuals first before giving the total message and i think that's an important aspect to influencing yeah um it's uh that's it's huge that uh can really help a a manager succeed in in their career 
Well, if you're a CFO, for example, then you you will you will have yeah. very likely have certainly in a larger team you'll have a, an accounting team and you'll have an FP&A team and you may have somebody doing tax and someone doing internal controls. Um, and again, depending on the depth of that, of that particular finance function, you might have a lot of people that need to understand. And if you have um, managers below you who maybe can understand the message first and then they can be able to explain mm. it in the same way, I think that's very, no, I think Nemo actually is a, a really vital part of, 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 of doing this kind of, of influencing, definitely. Yeah. Would, uh, um, if you were talking, and as you often do to APAC or regional CFOs, what do you tell them that they need to be aware of when they're managing, you know, Japan business? Um, I mean, I think certainly there is this conception, um, and uh, I, I, I do perhaps, um, I do wonder how different it is, but my feeling is that in Japan there's this conception that people are more sensitive to change mm. um, and that um, uh, perhaps they need a bit more of a kind of um, a one-on-one or an arm around the shoulder to sort of to, to really clarify why this thing has been made. There's definitely this kind of uh, uh, perceived, probably very real sensitivity in terms of how people react. Mm. Um, perhaps that's this um, um, this understanding that Japanese people can perhaps have a, a more conservative outlook um, and therefore reacting to change is harder for some people. Uh, and then just the other thing is that um, um, Japanese companies uh, it may not be in the kind of global companies uh, sphere, but certainly Japanese companies rotate people, rotate people perhaps when they don't have specific skills. Mm. Um, there's just this idea of rotation. So, okay, you were doing uh, bookkeeping uh, last year. This year you can do, you can do some HR thing. Um, and, and then suddenly like someone who was doing bookkeeping five years ago might suddenly be in the learning and development team. Um, and because of that, people tend to, people might feel um, that they don't want to be pushed around or they've had enough of being pushed around. That's one kind of thing that, mm. you know, people might be aware of. Um, That's good. Uh, yeah. And I think also that um, specific training may also be necessary for those kinds of people. But it's like, it's, I mean, this perhaps is less to do with big change, but certainly um, on an individual or kind of team level um, to understand that people might have ended up in a position almost by accident and, and they could do with having some kind of really focused training um, uh, to, to perhaps make them into a specialist, the specialist that they deserve to be. Um, you know, I've seen people who were working on the franchise department um, suddenly ending up in the marketing team with no real skills as a marketer um, with no disrespect to them it's just how they ended up and perhaps um, if those kinds of things have happened in the past to sort of understand that that's what has happened and maybe we can uh, try to make people into specialists and help them to do, do their jobs better yeah i was talking to a, a cfo recently he's he started his career in marketing and uh 
<laughs> how did you end up being CFO? It's like uh, the, the boss is, they, he was at a panel, a discussion with three people, and they said, you're going to be in finance now. <laughs> okay. <What? laughs> so he finally, he's like, okay, well, I guess I'll move up in, into finance and became a CFO. And, but yeah, he started his career off in marketing. So. It's... Yeah, I think for those people, I think, especially if you're moving into a really specialized field, um, finance is a good example, I think, that the company should then say, okay, um, we're going we're gonna to buy you some training, whether it's mm. like to get you up to skills on bookkeeping, whether it's, up, uh, you know, to, to help you do an, uh, an MBA, for example. Um, uh, and to, to to fund people's learning in, in that way and and, and help them, um, I think that's that's definitely important. Yeah, we we meet a lot of our clients who who say, well, yeah, we want someone that can hit the ground running, and it is relatively inexpensive to train someone compared to the recruitment costs to hire someone that uh, <laughs> that can hit the ground running in reality, which is uh, always a surprise to me. Um, oftentimes they could bring someone in a lower level or a different level and, and train them for um, minute cost and time compared to what it would cost to hire someone. I worked with one client. He, uh, they, uh, the company wanted a very specific skill set for their, their CFO. Across the world, they'd hired CFOs who were in their thirties. Okay. And you and I both know that in Japan, you just don't have the skill sets and mentality for young people yet in Japan that can be CFOs for a, a major retail company. They just don't have, the, they generally don't get trained and they spent over a year trying to hire this person. And they would have done wonders if they could have just brought been flexible and you know train someone up. They ended up hiring someone in their fifties and in the long run. <laughs> Before pulling out of Japan, I might add. Um, okay. So there's, tell me which client that was after we. Uh, yeah. yeah, that was a, a challenge. Well, it wasn't a client. That's a I think just a story for the the company. Okay. What? Um, let's let's jump back to myths about that APAC CFOs should be aware of um, in Japan. We always, the, the obvious one uh, that we talked about is, oh, we don't do that in Japan. Japan's so different. And that to me is a, a myth because I think that, you know, any country's different. I mean, 80% of what you're doing business sure. is the same, right? You go, you go to Brazil, it's going to be different than New York. It's, it's just it, yeah. right? And and Japan is different, but eighty percent of what you're doing is the same. You you have companies like IKEA or Costco, for example, who've just totally ignored it and come in and done exactly what they've done in other company countries. And yeah. so you can do it in in yeah. Japan. So in some ways, that that's a a myth that that can be overused. Um, what are what are some others that you would? Uh, well, I mean, I think I think modernization is something like it's funny. It seems like Japan has gone 
gone down and then up again, perhaps if, if, if you forgive the kind of vagueness of, of that image, but um, because of films like Blade Runner, for example, yeah. people coming into Japan think Japan is like super technically advanced. And then, well, when I came to Japan, um, you then find out, uh, aside from things like Hanko, um, there's also like fax was a huge thing. You talked about making a placement on the fax the other, the other week. Um, and, um, and so like there's this kind of crashing back down to earth experience of like, oh, goodness me. Wow. Japan is not technologically advanced. But then I do think that companies in the past three to five years have really been pushing to, uh, to do things like paperless change. Um, uh, and, and, you know, the Hanko, um, culture seems to be changing as well. There was a, a politician. Uh, who came in and, and said he wanted to get rid of, I think, Hanko and Fax with his, yep. uh, his big thing uh, a year or two ago. Um, and it's, I mean, I, I think those those things, maybe Fax is going to go first. Hanko, I'm not sure, but certainly like this idea of a dig- digital Hanko is something that Adobe have added to their software. Um, uh, so, I mean, it's essentially the same as like doing a DocuSign or something. So, yeah, from the kind of feeling that Japan is technically advanced to then learning that it's not technically advanced to now learning that it is again or it's getting better. I mean, I met the CFO on Friday who um, had uh, revolutionized the clocking in system at his company. So in, uh, from, from having time cards, which had to then be manually inputted into Excel, which, I mean, it's extraordinary to imagine yeah. that. He implemented like a face recognition thing where, you know, any new employee, the system learned what they looked like. And then when they arrived at work, their face was scanned and that time was logged as the time they started. And I think the same goes for when you log out, when you clock out. Um, for me, that's very technolo- technologically advanced. So it goes but back but we are still that. in the 19th century of clocking in. We, we just made it electronic. So. Well, sure. Yeah, I mean, there is that, yes. So there's a kind of like, that sort of thing is like a, a funny... Um, someone someone know, recently someone recently told me that uh, that they when they, they bought a house that they had to pay by cash uh, yep. for their down payment. They That's had to take true. a... Had to take a... a a suitcase full of cash notes to it to the bank to they can yeah. do the transfer so with the handcuffs on the uh, on the briefcase <laughs> yeah exactly um so maybe we, yeah. we we think we're technically advanced but maybe we're still not getting there i think the other thing is like the old culture of going out drinking with the boss and mm. staying out until he stays out that, I mean, it could be partly due to the pandemic. It could be before that. I'm not really sure, but I don't feel like that that is like a real uh, cultural um, quirk anymore. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I often speak to candidates who say, is there a drinking culture at that company? Am I going to be expected to go out? And, you know, in large part, the answer is going to be no. Um, you, you do what you want. Um, so long as you do your job properly. Um, so th- th- yeah, I think that there are some things which are definitely changing. Um, and then the other thing that occurred to me on this point of myths is this idea that I, th- I think, well, in any country, the, the idea of the C-suite 
is that they're kind of somehow untouchable, but also that makes them feel maybe lacking in this empathy that we talked about earlier. But I've seen, um, and working in a Japanese company, but I've also seen it talking to people from Western companies, that oftentimes the, the, the people at the top, they do want to understand how decisions are impacting mm. the uh, lower echelons. And, you know, they, uh, I've, I've, I've heard of CEOs, you know, setting up um, little kind of sit-ins with, um, you know, small groups of, of, of people who are maybe, I don't know, store staff or, you know, uh, administrative staff or, you know, the, the, as I say, the lower echelons of the company and, and wanting to kind of learn to maybe change what they do. Um, mm. So uh, I, I was kind of pleased when I heard about this kind of thing happening because there is this feeling that, you know, the executive branch, they don't really care. Yeah. They just want to push through their agenda and it's whatever for anybody else. But in, in actual fact, I don't think that's, that's true. Um, and speaking to both Japanese and uh, non-Japanese executives, uh, I see it happening more and more. That's great, so, which is a, a welcome change. A lot of those are welcome changes. The, the changing culture and, and the pandemics obviously helped with things like flex time. Um, mm. And there, there is a shortage of, of talent in the market, and it's even more, more so now than it was five years ago. And um, these changes are, are significant for companies if they want to survive. Um, well, what are you working on these days? What's the, what are you doing nowadays in your job? Well, um, so we talked about the, uh, this idea of, of exploring and, and, and going as deep as you can. Um, I've, I've definitely found through the great team members that I work with uh, how, how detailed people's notes can be after a meeting with a candidate or a client. And um, it's definitely been an area of um, Kaizen, if you like, from myself to sort of try and, um, and get better at asking questions. And I sort of practice on my kids in the morning. Um, or, or, or when they come back from school, um, what did you do today? Why did you have fun? You know, why was it? Why was it enjoyable? Why don't you like this meal that I've taken forever to prepare for you? Um, for example, <laughs> yeah. So, like, definitely uh, deepening my uh, ability at asking questions. Um, perhaps developing my curiosity is something that I've been, been trying to do more nice. of. That's a, a valuable quest, um, and you know those coaching questions are are super important. I many of the recruiters that I've uh, uh, taught over the years, the one one thing I always teach them to say is, "Tell me more about that." Yeah, uh, and uh, and what else? And yeah, what else? And what else is the the classic, isn't it? Yeah, it's it gets people talking. So besides uh, the obvious answer to this question, I'm going to ask you uh, is the, is what are your favorite podcasts you'd recommend to our audience? But I think besides the Focus Core besides podcast, besides the Focus Core podcast, what, what would be a, a favorite podcast you'd recommend as a kind of an omiyage to give to our audience uh, before we part? Um, 
So um, in, I come from the UK. Um, there are a lot of, of good podcasts coming out of the UK. Mm. Um, there's there's one which um, uh, so like on a more kind of personal development type of side of things. Yep. There's one called the High Performance Podcast, uh, which our colleague Simon introduced me to, and I listen to it a lot. Um, they often have guests who are from a sporting background, but it's not always sporting. Sometimes it's, um, you know, a business background, people who have had, high, you know, succeeded and, 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 you know, really displayed high performance in their chosen area of, 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 of expertise. Um, and they talk about their career and, their, and, and, you know, how they got where they, where they are and that kind of thing. Um, and it's a really, really uh, interesting uh, opportunity to learn about how people became successful. Mm. Um, so that's called the High Performance Podcast. Um, and then just on a kind of pure, um, slightly missing home on occasion entertainment point of view, uh, there's a British um, comedian called Adam Buxton, and he he does interviews, perhaps not dissimilar from the conversation we're having right now where he will speak to someone whether it's a writer or a musician or another comedian and they'll talk for you know an hour or so about their recent experiences and um it's not um it's not like a it's not intended to be a comic conversation it's just it's generally just a discussion about life um so adam buxton uh b-u-x-t-o-n uh, it's just a very, very good podcaster. That's great. We'll put uh, links to those in the show notes. Great. The high, the high performance uh, podcast I've listened to. It used to be called uh, "Don't Tell Me the Score," right? Uh, that not sure, not sure. <laughs> Back in the day, yeah, and he he's got all kinds of uh, guests, but it's really interesting how he pulls in like race car drivers and then mm. you know, talks about leadership and yeah. And, and uh yeah it's a good good podcast i like There's that a really really good episode with christian horner who's the principal from the red bull formula one team um and uh he you know he's been there pretty much since the start since before they were successful and, and now they have a world champion um and uh you know he, he's just he speaks really really um passionately and um uh and really you know tells a fascinating story about his his success and, and where he's where he's going so um, that's, that's definitely a, a podcast that's worth listening to fantastic well thank you for spending some time with me today jonathan your your insights about you know managing local and regional stakeholders are, are super insightful and always talking to you is insightful anyway so i appreciate you, uh, all all that you've given today yeah, likewise. Thank you for having me. It's been uh, really nice to talk to you. Thank you.